is just past 18 hours, 30 minutes, and 42 seconds East African time. Time for John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. This being Wednesday, the 19th of October 2022, Hamjambo Nakaribuni, hello and welcome. We are about to continue a conversation which was started in our previous edition. It was centered around a research book entitled Decentralization and Inclusion in Kenya from Pre-Colonial Times to the First Decade of Devolution. That is from 2013 to 2022. Its concluding chapter five reviews the extent to which a devolved system of government realized democratic inclusion for three marginalized groups, women, youth, and persons with disabilities, the latter referred to as PWDs. Case studies were conducted in five counties in alphabetical order, Garissa, Kakamega, Mombasa, Nakuru, and Narok, representative of urban, rural, sedentary, and nomadic existences, various religious beliefs, and diverse demographics of sex, age, and disability. Now, I first met our guest who will reveal herself later at the book's launch last week. She is one of the co-authors of the conclusive chapter. Now, to find the word for lecturer, I had to look for Mhadiri. But I was also at pains to find a definition of to marginalize. And it seems that to marginalize is to treat someone as insignificant or peripheral. And Mhadiri, to bring the two together, I can understand persons with disabilities, but there are more, slightly more women than men in Kenya. And we are constantly being told that a great percentage of our population falls within the youth grouping. So why do these two groups, women and young people or youth, dare to describe themselves as being marginalized when they're coming out in such force? Thank you, Mwalimu. Um, let's start by explaining that these groups do not describe themselves as marginalized. We describe them as marginalized in the Constitution itself. The history of our Constitution-making process identified certain groups as being on the periphery of the economic and the political spheres of decision-making. And these groups, there were five that were identified, and these groups included women, people with disabilities, and youth. But just to differentiate marginalization from minority status, marginalization does not have anything to do with numbers. It's about how close you are to decision making. 
So there are two elements of marginalization. You can be marginalized in terms of your distance from decision-making centers, which is what we call spatial marginalization, but you can also be marginalized because of societal reasons, and that's what we call societal marginalization. So for women, for youth, the reason why they are considered to be marginalized is primarily because of societal reasons. But as we will see when we have a discussion on the causes, for most women and youth, they experience a multiplicity of factors of exclusion that cause them to live on the periphery of decision-making in the political sphere, in the economic sphere, and that is why they are described as marginalized. So during the constitution-making process, there was always a discussion around what do we do about bringing women, about bringing youth, about bringing people with disabilities from the margins into the center. If they did happen to also um, live in areas that were marginalized historically, like the Northern Frontier District, there were other things that we needed to consider in terms of bringing them to the same level of living economically as those who lived within regions closer to the center like Nairobi. So that is why groups like youth, groups like women, even though they are numerically superior, because they are not at the center of decision-making politically, um, primarily, which is what the study is about, but also economically, are considered marginalized. Is there, dare I say it, a racial aspect to this definition? Because I've I've listened carefully. Mm. What about our Wazungus, our South Asians? Uh, don't they deserve to be described as such by your definition? But they are citizens. Mm. Yes. So, uh, okay, quick question. Mm. They are marginalized, but you haven't done a study on them. They are. So when you talk about who a marginalized person is, our constitution defines a marginalized group as any group of people, any member of any group of people, who because of laws or practices since independence have been treated differentially or discriminated against. That means on any of the grounds listed in the Constitution, whether it's age, race, um, sex, marital status, disability, ethnicity, if you have been treated differentially because of those reasons, then you are marginalized. So by definition, racial minorities are marginalized. By definition, women are marginalized. By definition, people with disabilities are marginalized. By definition, the elderly are marginalized. So the group is larger. Why did we focus on women, people with disabilities, and youth? Primarily because during the constitution-making process, they were isolated as the ones in need of legislative and other measures for inclusion. So if you read the content of legislation, the constitution-making process, the documentation of the Committee of Experts, you will see repeatedly reference to those three groups of people as the ones in need of affirmative action measures, and that's why we focused on them. I understand. Uh, and you set me up earlier by saying that when we come to discussing the causes, mm-hmm. I was you, you're telling me what to do in some measure. What are the causes? Because okay. you're, you're keen to tell us what, what are the causes of marginalization. marginalization. So this will be a sort of, I can see it coming. This is a, 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 what do they call it? A comfort zone for you. The causes of marginalization. Okay. I'll be following. Just okay. A, 
I'll try and, and summarize it because um, there's been a lot of writing around marginalization in Kenya also as part of our constitution making process because there are different groups of people who felt differentially treated because of the reasons I have given, whether it's because um, spatially you are far from the center. So, for example, people from the Northern Frontier District consistently saying Sisisio wa Kenya. So when they come to Nairobi, they keep saying Twenda Kenya because they believe that they are not in Kenya. So this idea that there are Kenyans and then non-Kenyans in the same country, that goes back to the definition I've given about spatial marginalization and societal marginalization. So some groups were left out of development and politics and the economy simply because they were located far from decision making. So if you're from Turkana, if you're from Lodwa, if you are from Namanga, if you are from Garissa, the further you are from the center, the more marginalized you were. That then meant conversely, if you're closer to the center, if you're from Kiambu, if you're from Nyeri, then you are closer to development, then you are less marginalized. Also, in terms of how development occurred, historically, we know that development was occurring along the path of the construction of the railway line. And that also benefited groups like missionaries that were coming in at the time. That then meant that the regions that grew economically were those along the railway line. And when the missionaries came, who are the responsible parties for bringing education, at least Western education, then they also focused on areas that they could travel to. And that was along the railway line. Then going back to the idea about of spatial marginalization, that then meant if you are not near a railway line, then you are marginalized. Um, there were also other things that privileged some groups over others. So for example, if we go back to the question of religion, with religion and education, missionary activity was also focused on some regions over others. So when I talked about an intersection of exclusionary factors, the groups that happened to be along the railway line, which was where the missionaries were operating, if they so happened to be closer to Nairobi, were more empowered. So we're talking about Nairobi, we're talking about Kiambu. The groups that lived around there tended to be more educated, more economically empowered, and groups that were further from those regions were then excluded. But when we also talk about women and youth, which are the two other groups that we talk about in the study, we also saw that because of policy, um, political policies, colonial policies around representation. At first, of course, we did not have any Africans represented. But when we began to have representation, representation was predominantly for men. It's men who got elected, it's men who got nominated. So women were relegated to the periphery when it came to representation. The same thing for youth and um, in the study in chapter four in particular, we talk about this perception about youth being immature and too um, unprepared for leadership. And we also see that there were references to the youth as people who were more prone to violence than to leadership, primarily because colonial laws tended to treat youth who were found in urban areas as vagrants. And so there was a perception that youth are not capable of leading because they were more prone to violence than other groups of people. They were irresponsible. And therefore, even as political inclusion began to be advanced to um, Africans and other racial groups, they were still relegated. So part of why we focused on youth and women was because even when we had a shift in terms of policies, we shifted from a racially segregated society and we went into the post-independent state, 
We never saw exclusion end, it merely changed forms. So what was segregation primarily on racial grounds became segregation on other grounds, including um, um, sex, including disability, including ethnicity. When you study the Truth, Justice, Reconciliation Commission report, you will see they focused on um, women, people with disabilities, and youth as people who have experienced a multiplicity or an intersection of exclusions, and this is why. If you are a young woman from Garissa, for example, you are far from the center, so you're spatially marginalized. As a young person, you are distrusted with leadership. You also come from a reason that was not favored developmentally and education-wise because the missionaries did not go to those regions. So you face exclusion for a, um, on a multiplicity of factors. So what we say is you're experiencing an interlocking of exclusion. And that is part of why it becomes very difficult to address inclusion, because you need to address multiple factors of exclusion before you can address inclusion. So broadly, those were the factors that we covered in Chapter 4, and which led us then to focus on women, youth, and people with disabilities as the groups to study in terms of inclusion. Thank you. I think what I'm going to do now, I, I deliberately uh, allowed you to set uh, the ground on your terms. And when we come back for the other three segments of the, of the program, I'm going to, first of all, ask you what you found out. Mm. And then, again, I'm going to be m Mr. Ms. Layperson and mm. just sort of um, hit you with my rhythm stick, as they say. But for a time being, um, a break. Okay. Haviri, uh, we went to the people and uh, got some responses, I believe largely from Kisi, to whom we put this question, their notion. What group of people do you think is most marginalized in Kenya? Jay, unadhani ni kundigani la watu limetengwa zaidi nchini Kenya? In my opinion, I feel the disabled, the people living with disabilities, they are kind of marginalized. The youth are more marginalized than any other group. The government offices were not patianga youth's promises and they are not fulfilling them. So unapata youths are not taking care of their injury. Alafu na kudokusima baadaye ati youths niwezi. People with disability, unapata mse ya kiumia ata kwa ofisi, akwe disabled. Anapewa tu compensation yake ya kiyenda, sieti there is a need for about two levels of govern, uh, government and find something for the persons living with disability, especially those in villages. Uh, they are really going through quite a number of challenges. People who are aged more than eight years are continuing getting government jobs, which is a disgrace to the economy, a disgrace to the society because we cannot take our children to school and yet they end up not getting jobs. The youth are marginalized, in my opinion. Wako represented, okay, though appear the disabled are represented, like in it, they need more opportunities and stuff. Women are watching now. Well, um, first of all, uh, 
there there's agreement mm. on on the groups uh, youth 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 lakini mhadiri nakuuliza swali la kwa mbona wanawake wanajicheka wenyewe wakae tuivo why this dismissal and, and, and yeah. I, i have a follow up mm. it might be a bit um, touchy but yeah mm. why do you think why do you think she responded as she did let them be women uh, oh gosh we've had enough of them we have had enough of them yeah. well i think when you study the inclusion agenda throughout the constitution making process throughout the first two cycles of devolution i believe there has been a huge focus on women's inclusion to the detriment of other marginalized groups it's what in inclusion studies we call double invisibility in this way there is an argument in inclusion circles that if you overemphasize the agenda of one marginalized group then you end up making the other groups appear invisible to the dominant groups and so in a sense you create double invisibility they're invisible to dominant groups but they are also invisible to within the circles of marginalized groups there may have been a sense that women are crying foul around inclusion yet they have gone further than other groups which is an idea we also espouse in the chapter that the truth Mahadiri, mm. Mahadiri, let, let's let, I said I, I won't be quite as obliging from now on yes. one one of um one of the things that you hear around mm. the coffee table the, the drink well is that come to elections for example and I know that you're an expert on, on election politics as well Yeah, the simple idea kuna wanawake wengi they could influence the whole course of events mm. if they really put their minds to it we wouldn't be having going through recounts of whatever form 34 they could crack it because there're just so many of they them they have numbers but yeah. they uh, the cultural challenge they will do quote unquote what is expected of them mm-hmm. and they're prepared to go for the lowest common denominator and just be paid off with a you know sort of 100 shilling note and vote for cool. that yes mm. so in other words mm. you have power yeah but you're not exercising the power but, yeah so i i can see the validity of having research and reverse mm. re- research reveals the complexity of things you know this sort of double glazing that you're talking about it mm. visible on one level we can see that mm. but what is going to change mindsets what what is this what is your what is what is the appeal of your research to women one of whom is saying watch okay okay i i think just trying to go into the mind of the person who said mbona wanawake wacha wakae i think it's this idea that we have done what we could have to get women to occupy positions which is a point i was making yes. in the sense that historically since the 1980s there have been very deliberate efforts to include women and to give them opportunities compared to other groups so if with all of these efforts women continue to say that they are not included it's not because efforts have not been put in place there is now a place for agency the women themselves now taking up the opportunities and now moving from nomination for example to elective positions i think the women have numbers they in terms of demography it is true women have numbers what women don't have is decision making power 
particularly because in our context, political parties remain the main avenue for entering into electoral politics. And women are not in decision-making positions in political parties. So they don't get to have as much of a say in terms of who gets candidature, including themselves. May I please ask you again, and I've asked mm. another guest before, mm. but, you know, um, maths for me isn't a 40. Tell me, what is this two-thirds gender rule mm. and who are the oppressors in layman speak who are making it impossible to take up this great throne and sit on it well because simply, again the, yeah. what, we're going back i'm, I'm trying mm. to the numbers the num the numbers are there you're sort of playing ludo or whatever mm. some kind of game with understanding uh, with a form of sort of um, social and political lucidity we could sort of have, who's that Kikuyu woman who uh, there was a revolution against her or there was a coup? There we could have some sort of coup, mm. but instituted by women, not against women, mm. not a, instituted by women. Okay, let me, let me start by explaining what the two-thirds gender rule and then why it was important. The two-thirds gender rule is a rule we find in our constitution which requires that whenever we are constituting elective bodies like legislative bodies or whenever we are appointing people to offices, we are to ensure that the entire composition of whichever body it is, if we're talking about parliament, for example, when we take the whole number, no gender occupies more than two-thirds of all the available positions. And that applies the same way for appointed positions. That's broadly what the two-thirds gender rule is. Why do we have this two-thirds gender rule? Even though, as you're saying, women have numbers, so ideally they should be taking up these positions. Historically, in as much as we have numbers and women have tried to contest elective positions since independence, we have never had women in parliament taking up more, up until 2010, more than six slots out of what was available then, which was 188 slots. So it became very clear that if we chose electoral politics as the avenue for inclusion for all groups, the, the playing field is not level. Something about women, youth, people with disabilities, I'll come back to the other two, but women makes it such that they cannot compete on the same level as men. Studies have been done around this question. There are many issues around why women cannot play at the same level. Some people have said it's because men have more money, so women cannot compete at the same level as men. There are studies like charity. Why not? Mm. You know, because mm. one of the great tenets of your research mm. is that the 2010 Constitution mm. has unlocked the doors of possibility in, yes. in, in manifold ways. Yes. And we've accepted that. Yeah. But I... In, as a as an intellectual, mm. African solutions for African problems, can't we sit down under a mogumo tree or baobab or some sort of um, leaf-bearing tree and say, we will have a minister for Wazungu, mm -hmm. we will have a minister for Wahindi, we will have a minister f because disabled has got a whole spectrum. Yes. There are people in a wheelchair. There are mm. people who can't see. Mm. And you're saying just because the minister for culture is blind, this is I, I find that difficult to accept as something that we should be yearning for. Political representation equals social good. I find that difficult to accept. 
Mm. Because I could be compassionate to your concerns. We've mm. all got relations mm. who stay with us, mm. who are there specifically because they're our mums and dads, and they're old. Mm. We're looking after them. Mm. We're not saying, uh, "Dad, Grandpa, in your wheelchair, take over in the household," are we? I hear you. So the idea about descriptive representation, which is, uh, I think, what we are referring to, and why we are insisting that each of these groups have their space in the arena of political inclusion is first of all the marker dignity as a marker the reason why we are citizens and we vote is because we are dignified by being involved in decisions that affect our destiny um, john stuart mill said that it is an, an injustice it's a personal indignity to exclude anybody from the rec having his voice reckoned in the ordinary affairs of men when he's going to be affected by those decisions. So primary reason why we insist on descriptive representation is it's dignifying to people to allow them to have their voice heard when there's a disposal of affairs that affect them. So it's not enough for us to have someone who looks into the affairs of the youth, which is what we've done in the past. We need someone who is young to tell us what do they want. And you would go as far as to suggest that uh, uh, a, a young person uh, under 35, uh, the biology is uh, uh, telling us that his brain is still in its formative years. We only use our full mental powers you know, at the age of in our mid-50s. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that we should have President, you know, uh, Yungo Kijana at the age of 45 and Deputy President his sister. No, surely uh -huh. not. They're not ready. They're not ready. Uh -huh. And dare I say it, in most cultures, we want them to grow up. Mm. Incidentally, and one of the things that um, you will find in the third and the fourth chapter is we debunk this idea of youth being unable to lead because oh. one of the things we did is to trace back youth involvement culturally. And we found that actually youth were not excluded from decision making. They only began to be excluded when the colonial government took over and required them to go to work. And therefore they're... Okay, so elaborate. I mm. mean, you're educating me as well. Uh -huh. In what way were youth uh, across the country in, in diverse cultures uh, hands-on? Mm. So one of the examples that is tracked, I believe, in the second chapter, but also in the fourth, is the idea about the, the Maasai Morans, for example, being involved in decision making in the community. And therefore, they were not relegated to the periphery when decisions were made. They were part of the decision making of the community. But with colonialism, because one of the things that the colonial experiment was, was an economic exploitation experiment. We required all able-bodied people to go to work so that they can pay tax. And so the value of the young person to the colonial government was how much tax can you bring in? That was the way in which they were perceived by the government. And anyone who is not working is a liability to the government. If we find them loitering in the city without working, we, we charge them as vagrants. So the perception of what the youth could do, of course, when they came into cities where they couldn't get jobs, they became criminals. So there began to be this dominant perception that young people are idlers, they are criminals, they are immature, they cannot be trusted. And that car gets carried forward into post-independent government. And up until 2003, we don't have anything on the youth in this country until the youth policy is crafted. So we have a huge population that no one asks in terms of what their needs are. We just decide what's right for the youth and we give it to them. Like they were saying, Kazi Kwa Vijana, not all youth can 
take up Kazi Kwa Vijana? What do we do with youth who are educated? Kazi Kwa Vijana will not be beneficial for them in terms of employment. Yeah. We'll take a break. And okay. then uh, just to allow you to think about the future, mm. I, I, this is one of these conversations where, again, we're not going to crack it in an hour. Maybe we should have this sort of um, John Sibyokum on Wednesday marathon. But I will draw you on the group which everybody agreed is marginalized. Mm. That is people with disability. Okay. And my apprehensions and preoccupations about who are we picking out of a whole phalanx of disabilities. Mm. Okay. A break. I'll say it again with conviction. Mhadiri, please tell me, please tell me, mm. who are people with disabilities? Okay. People with disabilities are defined in our constitution. I will not take the precise definition, but I'll give four broad categories of people with disabilities um, as they are contained in the International Convention. So it is people who have physical impairments, sensory impairments, mental impairments, which keep them from taking part in societal life to the same extent as other people. The understanding is that society has imposed certain barriers in terms of how these people can participate. And therefore, because of these physical, mental, sensory impairments, they are unable to participate in social life to the same extent as everybody else. If I'm in a room with people who can see and I am visually impaired, then I am not able to participate at the same level. If I am a wheelchair user and I'm coming to your office on the 19th floor and you don't have a lift, then I am not able to participate in activities on that floor because I cannot get there. So it's people who are not unable to participate in society because of structural and other barriers. And I'm going to repeat myself again mm. in, in a manner of speaking mm. by saying I'm in, I'm in Garissa and uh, I find it difficult going into a lift or getting into a matatu. And I find that the laws of Garissa are fantastic. Uh, you know, there's the matatus in Garissa, but I suddenly go to the next county down and because of dissolved government, they're not taking the same steps. So you have argued forcefully about the idea of decentralization being for the greater good for marginalized people. Mm. But I would have thought that federalization, centralization mm. would have a one shoe fits all for everybody everywhere. So it, regardless of whether I was in Mombasa or Kisumu, mm. I would end up in a, a block of flats which would not be allowed to be constructed. So again, the, the, the dichotomy between uh, political power, we've got somebody at the top, mm. and structural adjustment that actually changes the, the lives of people. Uh, where are the schools with, with Braille? Mm. If we don't have the schools with Braille, then the fact that the minister uh, is somebody who requires that 
is not enough. Mm. So I'm trying to suggest obliquely that the research is fine. Who is to take the baton mm. and go off and come up with some legislation that will actually change people's lives? Mm. Across the country, mm. across the country, not in just sort of selected um, Okay. Oases. Mm. Well, two things we talk about in the study. The first thing is that because these groups are not at the center of decision making, then people make decisions, people in leadership make decisions based on their assumed or perceived needs as opposed to actual needs. You don't know what I need unless I tell it to you. You can try and guess what I need, but you would only know what I truly need, not just perceived to be my need when I tell it to you. Part of the challenge with inclusion for these groups when we had centralized government only was the people who made decisions for these groups did not include people in these decision-making processes. And therefore, the measures for inclusion were not um, actually tailored to their particular needs. Why decentralization is an important avenue is this. The argument is when we bring government closer to the people, you're dealing with a smaller demographic. Chances are more homogeneous than you would find at the national level because if you're dealing with a county, chances are the community and culture are fairly similar, of course, with with differences across the board. And therefore, it's easier to communicate your need. It is easier to be understood. So you're saying, sorry, that a Kenyan can't do what an American can't do, sort of get into a 10-ton truck and decide to relocate from um, San Francisco to to Florida as their right. Mm -hmm. You're saying the Floridarian, if such people exist, should stay in their own neck of the woods uh, because there'll be more people like them. No, what we're not saying... We're not saying... We're a nation. mm, I... That's fine. And our, you know, our country is our nation. Mm. There's some sort of John Denver song in the Green Hills of Kiambu, whatever. They're mine too. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I, I think the assumption is that if we decentralize, then we are weakening national unity, which is one of the arguments that yes, was I, made. Yes, you, you, you have. You, I, I wish to put it to you, and you've put it much more succinctly than I ever could. Yes, yeah. I, I'm asking. Is yeah. that the case? No, incidentally, and this is one of the arguments we've made in the book. We actually become more unified when we acknowledge diversity, as opposed to when we ignore diversity. It would appear if you look at the way in which um, Majimboism was spoken against, particularly during the Mori regime, it was this idea that if we remove power from the center, then we are encouraging the the formulation of ethnic cleavages. And so we are going to split into all of these ethnic nations or tribal nations across the country. But nothing could be further from the truth because what that then did was suppress some ethnic groups in the name of national unity. What decentralization tries to do is to pursue national unity by acknowledging diversity, acknowledging that everyone's needs cannot always be the same unmet at the central level, and trying to pursue national unity by giving you a voice, both at the national level and at the county government level, which is why we have national legislative institutions, but we also have county legislative institutions. Those things that are only particular to your county, you will legislate for them at the county level. If, for example, the the issue that is important to your region is healthcare, you have a unique opportunity to legislate around those issues in your area and address gender-based violence, address disability, address infrastructure, because you are the ones using those facilities. But at the same time, we also get to make decisions affecting the nation at the national level. 
which is why we have representation in the National Assembly and Senate, but also at the County Assembly. So we are not taking away from national unity. We are pursuing unity by supporting diversity. And can I also tell you that having read your chapter, mm. uh, everything is happening wonderfully at the county level. Mm. But the people who are resistant uh, to the two-thirds gender bioexplanation is indeed at the national level, which which is a... Well, I don't, I'm looking for the English word. It is A true. nice one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think it's a human thing. I think mm. nobody likes to cede power. And the truth was, with decentralization, we removed a lot of the power, particularly from the presidency. Because if you remember the slogan that happened during Moi's regime, for example, it was always, Sia Sambaya, Mai Shambaya. The idea that if you don't align with the presidency, then there's no development happening for you in your region. But now but, with... Sorry, Madiri, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, 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 there's all, again, mm. why we've had so many presidents, why this particular vilification of the Moy era? I okay. mean, the Moy era, Kufata mm. Nyayo, let's, because our history books have to be rewritten. Mm. The, the, the rain starts beating us negatively. Mm. Uh, everything's fine. Jomo Kenyatta comes along. Everything's fine. Things only fall apart with a second president who, you know, five sort of weeks into the job when he's trying to do wonderful things, people try to get rid of him in a coup. Okay. You know, I, I have a certain sympathy for Moy, I must mm. admit. Mm. No, I do. I think okay. if, if I were in his shoes, yeah. and I, I'm not a power seeker, but I think if, if the idea of political power is to consolidate it, and this is another conversation, mm. but I don't see why that the vilification of that era mm. should then represent a great leap forward because the Kenyan people were still there at the time. Mm. The Kenyan people could have fought... Um, um, furiously against the idea of being told to queue up in a line to say who they were voting for. Mm. So, And you're saying people should be allowed to make their own decisions. But here they're being whipped into shape and they're shaping up. Mm. So you see what I'm saying? I'm, yeah. I'm being a bit woolly in my thing. But I hear you. Let's have a measure of, of, of restraint. I hear you. I, and, and I'm in, incidentally, in the book, we are not vilifying that era alone. I, I just use it as an example. But throughout the book, we talk about how exclusion continued from independence all the way up until the Kibaki government. We've tracked all of the eras. Okay. So it's not just one era. I, am, I just gave an example. I'm placated. Yeah. I also am, because it was yes. the longest era. So exactly. it was, there was more material to analyze, I said in a sense. Right. But also I think it's also important to keep pointing out that President Moy in the pre independent state was one of the people who pushed for Majimboism. Right. So there was a feeling that when he came to power, then now we have a good opportunity to bring back Majimboism. And then he becomes its foremost opponent. So there was this strange irony about this person who pushed for this system hmm. is the first person to say, no, no, we're not going to do this because we're well, going to be weakening national unity. Mahadiri, time yeah. permitting, we shall bring in the historians. Yeah. Because, because, you know, we have, yeah, it, it's fascinating. And I think one of the things that we're doing in our conversation is um, putting to light just to the extent where our own history is a mystery to us. Mm. The fact that uh, a group of academics sitting at the university uh, telling us things that I, I seem to think should be in the public domain. Mm. I think that I think that 10-year-olds should be told that decentralization is a good thing. Mm. If if the syllabi, then we, we're going to, dis what, what what is in our syllabi that we're teaching our children? 
it's all very well for people to be struck in a, uh, in, a, in a traffic jam listening to us using big words on their way home. But I think we're preaching to the converted in this way. Mm. We, we do realize that Kenya is a fragmented country. Mm. We do realize that the, the, the notion of nationhood is, is yet to be fully realized. And you're just saying decentralize and you'll get closer to it. So are you admitting, are we as a nation in a very sort of perfunctory history book, are we saying that we made a mistake all those years ago when we did not adopt Majimboism. Is that one line acceptable? Yes. Oh. Yes. Actually, Majimboism wasn't given a chance to work because historically we put it in place in 1963. We abolished it by 1964. So even before it had a chance to work properly, we completely killed it off. So we never got to see it work before we said it could not work. So this is actually the very first time that we have properly decentralized because it never got to work previously. So if we're trying to track whether Majimboism existed, in actual sense, it never got to be rolled out before it was wound up. So this is the very first experiment that we're doing with decentralization in actual practice. Capital FM. Mahadiri, our last segment... What a pity. Mm. But um, we began the whole conversation, as it were, with last week's edition, with the appeal to academia. There was a comparison to the biblical Joseph and uh, the role of academia in our society. Could I again give you free flow relatively to tell us you've done this research it's yielded results. And you are Joseph, you are whoever enlightened the Buddha guiding us to as a segment of society. What are your results telling us to do? Uh, and again, um, I'm going to set you up. I'm a set-up mm, man. Mm. <laughs> I'm a set-up man because before you speak... Again, in the chapter, there's a chapter that says that when we talk of the BBI, mm. there is talk of increasing a number from 290 to 360. Mm. So in other words, again, with poor maths, the idea that you have such a huge number that by the, just by the law of statistics, the, you know, the genders will work themselves out because there'll be so many women and so many men because you have, you have to look for people to fit in the slots. Mm. Uh, would you dare to be so vocal as to see the future and say perhaps that's not the thing for us to do? Mm. I'll go back to the question that you had asked your listeners around the three groups and how they're faring, because that relates very closely to our study, and then I can speak for a moment around what we want in the future. So of the three groups, women, people with disabilities, and youth, what we seem to be seeing, it's, it is true, people with disabilities are faring very poorly across the board. Whether you're talking about being elected, being appointed to office, they're not doing very well. Um, but women, and, and this is one of the things that we recommend in the study, women predominantly are coming in through nomination. And we need to find ways of shifting the narrative around women's capacity to lead from they are only good for nomination or what we have referred to in the study as flower girls or bonga points and moving them towards moving the society towards seeing women as people capable of le leading in their own right. So what do we do with the results? Number one, 
keep highlighting success stories because there are many success stories of devolution. There are many success stories of women's leadership. Even in 2022, we have seen some of those. There are many success stories in terms of service delivery. We have seen areas like Kakamega doing very well. But we also need to come up with a formula where all of the groups are included at all levels. Women are doing very well at the county assembly level. They are not doing very well at the national levels. The formula that we are using at the county assembly level, we propose that we have a similar formula being used at the national level, at the parliament and at the Senate to lift the numbers of women. But because of this perception that women who are nominated are not as good as elected leaders, my personal appeal to women would be to consider going for elective office so that we change the narrative around how women's leadership should occur. For youth, um, the story is a really good one at the county assembly level. Many youth got elected as members of county assemblies. They did not vie for as many roles in higher offices. We need to have more and more people into those spaces if policies around youth are going to change. For disability, part of the challenge that we seem to have is not only are they relegated nationally, but we also don't have statistics around them. So we don't know what numbers we are working with for purposes of inclusion. We need to find a way of monitoring the place of people with disabilities so that we see how we comply with the 5% rule that requires for all elective and appointive positions, at least 5% be given to people with disabilities. So where is the future? Number one, highlighting success stories across the counties. There are some where county governments are working. There are some county governments where things are not working quite as well. Of the five that we highlighted as study counties, Kakamega appeared to be doing the best, Garissa appeared to be doing the worst. There is room for benchmarking across counties, so we see how lessons from one county can be translated into other counties. We also need to keep monitoring the compliance of um, each of these counties with the rules because we have discovered that in some cycles, women, youth, people with disabilities do better. And then midstream, particularly when it comes to leadership, then when there's transitions that occur, women especially when they're nominated are asked to relegate their positions to other people and usually it is men. We need to keep being vigilant around whether the rules are being complied with when it comes to inclusion, both at the county assembly level, but also at the national legislative institution level. I think also we might need to do the sort of workers of the old world unite thing. Mm. I Do we, why not a chama chawanawake mm-hmm. and find a woman leader who could appeal to her constituency countrywide. Mm. I'm raising the monster of ethnicity mm. in the sense that it won't go away. It, mm. in, it, with, why don't we have a Chama Chavijana in the recently uh, ended elections? Mm. I cannot, maybe I wasn't following the news, but I think I tried hard. I didn't see a youth leader that we might, you know, um, the Democrats have got Bedo Becco or something in Texas. Mm. Where's our, you know what I mean? Mm. The dear gentleman's name, I forget it, but you know the mm. guy I'm talking about. Mm, mm, mm. Already we can see there's a young person hoping to take over from Biden mm. in 10 years' time. Mm. 
Where are those people? I think for the youth in particular, and I, I believe you've had previous discussions with young people, there seems to be a feeling that there is no room for them at the national politics level. And so they have taken to other... No, but I was, I was being slightly yeah. more nuanced. Mm. I was saying across the board. Mm. So that, you know, there's a there's a young gentleman from Western Kenya, from Busia, mm. whose appeal is national. Exactly. Yeah. And there is a woman mm. who does the same thing. Now, Charity Ngilu, in her time, would have been a unifying factor because obviously... No, not obviously, one would have thought that that was the big moment for women to show their mm. force by mm. voting for a woman. Mm. She didn't do well, as I remember it. Is this when she ran for president exactly. in 97? Exactly. Mm. I hear you. I mean, I mean, the same thing has been asked about Martha Karua. Why didn't she do so well when she ran for president? Why didn't she do so well when she ran for, for governor? I will propose a different way of looking at it, and this is part of what uh, we keep saying in the book. We will not, in my view, see any progress for each of these groups if they keep going at it as separate groups, with women doing their own thing, youth doing their own thing, people with disabilities doing their own thing. The reason why they don't make progress separately is because it's very easy to divide and conquer. You find the women, like what you were talking about, the BBI. Yes. If you studied the BBI bill, one of the things that the bill was very deliberate about is trying to get women on board. How do you get them on board? Promise them you're going to create more seats and make sure that you bring women on board. But to do so, the seats that were given to youth and people with disabilities were removed in the proposal. So it's very easy to divide and conquer when each of these groups are seeking inclusion on their own. I would uh, propose a way of working together going forward where you don't have one constituency trying to seek inclusion alone to the relegation of the other groups. Have one group that brings together women, youth, people with disabilities. I think we will make more traction that way. Right. So I get to the point in the program, 19 hours 24, could bide the time for a few more seconds. But maybe now is the time to find out who are you. Mahadiri, may I ask your name? I'm Luciana Thur. Luciana Thur. Yes. And what do you do? I, I know, but they don't. <laughs> I teach law at Kabarak Law School um, in Nakuru. Right. Again, this is the segment why we try to um, encourage what we think is a young listenership. Uh, how did you become you? And what are the delights of being you professionally? What was the trajectory which you took to become a lecturer? Okay. Uh, so I became a lecturer eight years ago. Remember, we started off by sort of saying, ah, mm. lecturers, they're useless. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, define your usefulness. <laughs> Actually, I'll just, I'll just say this. Um, I hope my, my student listening. There's a student who said to, to me and other lecturers that they should work hard so that they'd not become like their lecturers, and they pointed to us. And I kept wondering what was wrong with lecturers. Um, so I became a lecturer eight years ago. Um, eight, eight years ago now? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, after doing my master's at the University of Pretoria, I studied human rights and democratization. And I wanted to go into writing and researching. And so the, ac the academy was what appealed to me. And so I took a trajectory from public service where I was before and I became a lecturer. So I'm trained primarily in the law, but I've specialized in human rights and democracy. 
And one of the areas I focus on in terms of research and writing is election law. So at Kabarak Law School, I also teach election law alongside other international courses. Your profession within the country has been accused of not publishing enough. Comment, please. I think it is true. And I think when Professor Ambani was here last week, he also spoke to the same challenge. And this is a global challenge. This is not a Kenyan challenge. This idea that we do not create ideas, we do not generate knowledge, we just re regurgitate what we learned, which was what was introduced to us. And when dare we I say, mm. if we hit the pinnacle of our careers, mm. we wish to be snapped up dare I say it, mm. by the University of Pretoria mm. or, you know, part of the brain drain. Mm. It's not good enough to be at home because it's poorly remunerated, etc., etc. Comment, please, because you have your career ahead of you. Mm. Is there a level of despair? I would say it's a mix I would say some some people have left because it does, as you're saying, it doesn't pay quite as well as other areas of legal practice. But I believe one of the things that has done has worked very well for us is to be involved in research that is topical, research that addresses daily lives of people, so that you can see the direct impact of your research on policy making, on decision making, and that is what makes the academy so important for policymakers. So we're not just sitting in a library dolling out ideas. Can I ask another simple question? Mm. Do you make specific tracks to be heard by leaders? I mean, how do you interact with government on a, do you have monthly uh, monthly meetings? Because mm. there are lots of universities. Mm. But I think I asked this question to the professor and I'm asking the same question. Mm. Uh, I wasn't happy with his answer. Okay. There wasn't a connection between academia and the world of governance. Okay. So I would say each school would be different in terms of what approach it takes. Kabarak Law School in particular, because we are a center of good governance, has a very direct in involvement with various arms of government, the judiciary and other actors. So in terms of how we interact in, in, in getting our research out there, for example, with this book, we are working with the National Gender and Equality Commission, so they get to use our research directly for advocacy. So our research does get into the hands of the people who make the decisions. Our students also get to interact at a frequent level with government officials, so they get to understand how the how government works on a regular basis. So we're not operating in a silo, in a sense. We don't just have the academy separated from government. They get to be a part of the way we teach. They influence our students through guest lectures, but also the research that we do, including this book, gets to be used for advocacy work by people in government. 19 hours. 29 minutes, 10 seconds, East African time. We have to stop there. Do continue to give us feedback, hopefully positive and reassuring, on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 0701-984-984. I've been talking to Luciana Thuo, a lecturer at the School of Law 
Kabarak University, Nakuru County, and co-author of a newly published academic study from her own university's press. And you've been listening to John Sibiokumu on Wednesday, as you know. Thank you for doing that most kindly. Until next time.